Uh, Matthew chapter 15, we'll be looking at the first 20 verses. The title of this message is The Problem with Religion. The Problem with Religion. I'll be reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. Rather lengthy passage here, uh, but let's put our hearts and minds to it. We'll start reading now in Matthew 15, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, then they're not to honor their mother and father with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus then called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. But what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came and asked him, "Uh, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Jesus replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them alone. They're blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, your word that is before us this morning is holy. It's holy, God. It's your very word. And it's fully authoritative. It is the absolute rule for what is true and what is to be believed and practiced. And so as a church, we place ourselves under the authority of your word. And we ask that you would give us understanding and insight into your word. That you would bless our ears to hear and our eyes to see. You'd help us to comprehend what it is you were saying here and what it is you're saying to us here. And that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would help us to respond to your word, to live lives that glorify and honor you. That we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So please help us to do that, Lord. And help me now, we ask together, to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to the Bible and helpful to the church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, pretty gnarly text in front of us here. Uh, What what if I were to ask you a a really unfair question? What if I was to ask you to, to give an account for, as you were preparing to come to church this morning, how much time you spent preparing uh, your heart 
as opposed to your appearance? What if we were to ask that question? Now, looking at some of you, I could tell you spent almost no time on your appearance. God bless you. (laughs) I recently had someone say to me, this is a true story. It was someone on staff. We were talking about wardrobes and outfits. And they said to me in a very kind way, this is off point now, but they said, you know, Britt, about a thousand people every week see what you wear. You should maybe give it some thought. what he said to me. (laughs) So anyway, back to my intro. Uh, I can't remember exactly where I was, but but the point is this. We, We usually spend more time worried about the outside appearance than the inward stuff that's going on. You know, even like church, which should be a very like inward experience of hearing God's word, responding to God's word, worshiping God, communing with one another. We often spend way more time on our outfit and our hair and our makeup and so on than we do on preparing our hearts for that thing. We are just sort of by nature as fallen creatures, a very sort of external oriented sort of people. And it was really no different for the people in the Bible here. And we see that kind of playing out in this interaction. The proverbial antagonists arrived from Jerusalem. Proverbial antagonists, the Pharisees, those who were most careful at keeping the rules, the religious rules in that culture. And then the teachers of the law or the scribes, those who were entrusted in Israel with the responsibility of interpreting the scriptures, the law, God's law for the people. They arrive and it's a contingency from Jerusalem. So these are the heavyweights you got to remember, Jesus is doing his ministry sort of in Podunk, Galilee. He's up north, he's out in the country, and there were some Pharisees and scribes that frequented that area. But these are the heavyweights that came to Jerusalem. No doubt they had heard about what's going on with Jesus, and they came to investigate it very carefully from their perspective of carefully observing, observing, excuse me, uh, the religious rules. And so they come with this, question. Really, it's kind of an accusation. They say in verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Key phrase there. They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, let's deal with those two things, washing your hands before you eat and the tradition of the elders. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? The tradition of the elders was this thing within Judaism, also known as the oral law. The oral law, because it was a long time before it was written down, it was passed down generation to generation in Judaism orally. By the year 200 AD, it had been kind of codified into a bunch of writings uh, known as the Talmud, made up of the Mishnah and the Gemara. You've probably heard of these things. And these were basically Jewish or rabbinical teachings on God's law or God's word. And so within Judaism, you really had two authorities that spoke into the way that Israel lived. You had the law of God or God's word, also known as the Torah. And then you had the teaching of the elders or the oral law or what came to be known as the Talmud. You had these two authorities that they held in esteem. Now, it was generally a good thing that this oral tradition, this teaching of the elders developed. At least the intention was good. These were students of God's word 
carefully trying to discern how God's people should apply God's word in every situation in their lives. So that was a good thing. It was a good service. There was good intent there. Students of God's word trying to determine how God's people should apply God's word in every instant of their lives. And so the way that they thought about it when they were developing the uh, tradition of the elders was they said, let's build a fence around the law. If this is God's word to Israel, if this is God's law, so no, now is the Bible or more specifically the Old Testament, Let's build a fence around it so that we can't possibly violate it. If this is the place that we need to obey, let's set some rules that are more around here so that if we're sure not to get past that fence, then we definitely haven't violated God's word. Do you see what I'm saying? So it was kind of like a buffer zone. If God says this, well, then let's be really careful and not even do that. Let's build a fence around the law to keep us from violating the law. So you could see how it was, in essence, at least in its intent, a good thing. And we see in the Gospels that Jesus is not generally opposed to the tradition of the elders or oral law, as it's called, unless it came in conflict with God's law, which is something that we see going on here. In fact, he practiced some of the tradition of the elders, praying or blessing the meal before you ate. That was one of the traditions. The Bible had said in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10, after you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. So the Bible said, well, after you've eaten, then go ahead and thank God. The fence that they said is like, well, we don't even want to get close to blowing that. So let's thank God before we even eat. You see that? And now you all do that, don't you? Busted. No, it's not a problem. Jesus did the same thing. Uh, paying temple taxes. We see Jesus doing that. That was part of the tradition of the elders as well. So they come to Jesus and they say, look, your your guys are are violating, they're breaking the tradition of the elders, the oral law, by not washing their hands before they eat. Now, this was not the same command that thou mother has spoken to thee, wash thy hands before you eat. It's not not the same thing. This was not an issue of uh, hygiene. It was an issue of ceremonial cleansing. The Jewish idea of ceremonial cleansing and the other side of it, defilement, that we'll get to in a moment, was this. How can we sort of externally prepare ourselves to be accepted before God? What do we need to do so that we could enter into God's presence in worship in the tabernacle or the temple? And so there were certain external observances that God gave his people Israel that they were to engage in, but they were always supposed to be an outward manifestation of this inward thing that was going on. They weren't meant to be mere rote or just something that you did that didn't have any meaning or just a way that you just kind of like an entry fee or something. They were supposed to have this significance of this inward thing that was going on. So God had commanded in the book of Exodus that the priests, when they served in the temple, before they offered up the sacrifices, they would wash their hands in the brazen laver that was in the, the, the tabernacle courtyard there. They would wash their hands as a symbol of realizing that in order to come into God's presence, we as sinful people need to be made clean. And so they would begin that ritual by symbolizing uh, that, by pouring water over their hands, and then they would make the sacrifices of the animals presented before God, through which their sins would be covered. 
So there was this rich symbolism and outward doings, but there was always supposed to be an inward reality to it. So washing your hands was this ceremonial cleansing idea that kept us from being defiled or, or, or not able to be in the presence of God because of our sin. It was only, as I said, prescribed for the priests to do in the Old Testament. But again, the elders built a fence around the law. They said, well, if the priests are supposed to do that when they're doing their ministry of sacrifices in the tabernacle or the temple, let's just have all of Israel do it. So if all of Israel is washing their hands all the time before they do anything, then we're definitely not going to violate that. You, you see the idea of building a fence around the law. Originally, good intent. And that's exactly what is going on here. And that's the basis of the charge. The problem here is that the religious leaders were number one, missing a key truth about defilement in the nature of it, which Jesus will get to in verse 10. And number two, using their traditions to live selfishly, there was some duplicity there, right? There was some religious game playing going on. And number three, they were misplacing divine and final authority in the tradition of the elders, the oral law, as opposed to the word of God, God's law. So Jesus takes them to task in verse 3 and says, well, why do you break the command of God? He's directly confronting the tradition of the elders with the command of God. Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, quote unquote, they are not honoring their, or they are not to honor their mother and father with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain and their teachings are merely human rules. So Jesus takes them to task. And the first issue that he addresses is their underdeveloped view of God's word. He directs their attention to God's word as opposed to the tradition of the elders. The authority is found in the word of God, in God's law, as they would have called it, not the tradition of the elders. Those may have sometimes been helpful. They may have been good in intent, intent, excuse me, but that is not where the authority lie. The authority was in God's word. So two different times, Jesus confronts them about that in verse three and verse six, their preference for tradition over scripture. They had adopted in their religious experience an authority other than God's word. God's word is the full and final authority for God's people. It's God's word. It's not man's word. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's true in everything that it asserts and teaches It is God's revelation to us. God's word is the full and final authority for the way that we think, act, and live as God's people. Jesus is highlighting that here. And scripture claims this about itself abundantly. Look here in 2 Timothy, where we read, All scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, right? Everything that we need for life. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Look now what Peter wrote. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. And again, Peter would say, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So Jesus is drawing their attention away from their lesser tradition to the final authority of God's word. And in doing that, he exposes now their hypocrisy. There's some real hypocrisy working here in the religiosity. They were actually hiding behind the guise of their tradition to live selfishly from a place of selfishness rather than holiness, right? The whole guise was like, look, we're Pharisees. We're the teachers of the law. We're the scribes. We put the fence around the law. Our main concern here is just holiness. God called us to be holy. That's our our main concern. And that would be good if it was true. But Jesus is revealing some actual underlying selfishness here hidden behind the mask of religion. And in doing that, Jesus quoted two Old Testament texts. In verse 4, honor your mother and father, which is the fifth commandment. We have it here on the screen for Deuteronomy chapter 5, one of the Ten Commandments. He quoted that. And then he also quoted Leviticus 20, when he says anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. We ought to use that in the children's ministry. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Little... uh, Sunday, what do they call them? Arts and crafts that represent that. That'd be awesome. (laughs) Jesus quotes those two passages now, right? Bringing their like law-oriented mind back into perspective here, right? He's throwing it right back in their face. We have New Testament things that speak of this as well in Timothy, speaking about how the church should care for widows and stuff and how families should work when people are in need. If a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. See, that's a New Testament playing out of those Old Testament ideas. Verse eight, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. New Testament, just as harsh as the Old Testament there. God had some real opinions about family, about parents, and honoring our parents and our grandparents. Notice also what Jesus is doing here. He's sort of subtly redirecting their focus away from the pursuit of personal holiness toward relational holiness. That's something to think about for a moment. We're, we're, we're pretty myopic. We're pretty 
sort of egocentric. And, and if we think about holiness at all, we often think, well, if I could just make myself clean, if I could just not do certain things or make sure that I do certain other things, and that's going to be good enough. And that's, that's really where the Pharisees were living, like just personal holiness. There's, there's a place in which that's okay. But Jesus is always drawing us toward the other. He's getting them to think about relational holiness, not just about you and your clean hands. It's also about those that are in your family to whom you are responsible, for whom you're supposed to care. And it doesn't just stop with our family, right? The New Testament extrapolates that, as does the old, out to all sorts of people that we have an obligation to. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus redirects them away from mere personal holiness toward relational holiness, loving and caring for others as we're supposed to do. So he calls them out on this thing that they have that is called here in Matthew, devoted to God. Verse five. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is, quote, devoted to God, they're not to honor their mother or father with it. So the, the, in, in Mark, we're told what this was called in the culture. It was called korban. Korban is just a transliteration of the Hebrew word that means offerings. So in tradition, they had developed the system where anything that they had, they could declare it holy to the Lord or devoted to the Lord or as an offering to the Lord so that it couldn't then be devoted to anybody else. That was payable to the Lord upon death. This was a really convenient little tradition they came up with. Uh, Here, we'll just put it succinctly for you. The Corban practice in view was that of pledging money or other material resources to the temple to be paid upon one's death. These funds could therefore not be transferred to anyone else, but could still be used for one's own benefit while one was still alive. Isn't that convenient? So what was happening within culture and clearly among these religious leaders is they were, you know, being very religious by saying, okay, I'm I'm, going to give all this stuff to God when I die. It'll go right to the temple as an offering to God. And then their parents are in need, whatever that was, like it's time to, you know, some medical care or housing or or whatever that is. And sorry, mom, I, I I don't have funds for that. I gave it all to God. And, you know, within that religious culture, mom would have been saying, oh, what a sweet little boy. Good job, son. I guess I'll just starve to death or whatever was going on. But this is like a real situation. Jesus is is exposing their hypocrisy there. That's why he calls them in verse 7, you hypocrites. Pretending to be so concerned about this holiness, we make sure that we wash our hands. We built a fence around the law. We're not even going to get close to violation. But the heart of the law, love, was being thoroughly violated and trampled upon. And Jesus calls them out on that. And he was calling out their whole culture in that. This has become kind of the religious cultural norm. They just kind of all agreed to sink to this hypocritical level here. So again, Jesus in verse 7, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he spoke about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are mere human rules. So the other thing that's going on here in this hypocrisy is that they were so concerned about the problem with the disciples 
but they were missing this huge incongruency in their own life before God. And I think we're a lot like that a lot of the time. You know, sin looks a lot worse on other people than it does on ourselves. There is a lot we excuse when we look in the mirror that we just won't excuse with other people. I'm not talking external, I'm talking internal. We're very much that way. Jesus brought it out in a teaching earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, and we said, you are so concerned with the speck in your brother's or sister's eye, but you don't even notice the log that's in your eye. They've got this little issue they're dealing with, this incongruency. It's definitely a problem, but you've got this huge incongruency, sin issue, wrong thing in your life, and you want to deal with their speck and not your own? That's what's going on here. Saying, guys, you've got you to look at yourselves before you're looking at everyone else and what is wrong with them. And man, we're just like that. We first look at everyone else and what is wrong with them before we look at ourselves. And that, that just needs to be corrected. Um, you guys are familiar with My Utmost for His Highest, a, a devotional book, wonderful devotional book by Oswald Chambers, one, one of the greatest. He said this on this topic. We see where other folks are failing and we turn our discernment into the jibe of criticism instead of intercession on their behalf. Take care lest you play the hypocrite by spending all of your time trying to get others right before you worship God yourself. I mean, that's just an apt warning. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders would, would get that in lots of different ways from Jesus throughout the Gospels. We also need to get that. We are called to deal with sin within the church and all these things, and there's a way to do that, but it's never in lieu of dealing with our own selves and our own hearts before God, looking first to ourselves. And then he says about them there in verse 8, uh, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So lip service as opposed to life service. They didn't walk the talk. Their, their hearts weren't in it. They were just going through religious motions. That's the problem with religion, external observances, is we can just kind of go through these motions and deem ourselves to be okay. Well, I showed up to church or I gave a couple bucks or I did this or whatever it is. And just think, well, that, that's enough. But we can do all of those things. We could do all of the right things, but not with the right heart. And Jesus is saying here, that's hypocrisy. And that's not worth anything. He says, they worship me in vain. Meaning it's futile. It has no effect. There's no merit in it. It doesn't bless God and it doesn't transform you. It's in vain. Just going through the religious motions. Uh, here's another quote from you, for you, not from you. That would be plagiarism if you claim that. Let it be a settled resolution with us that in all our religion, the state of our hearts shall be the main thing. Let it not content us to go to church and observe the forms of religion. Let us look far deeper than this and desire to have a heart right in the sight of God. You know, we're in the same dangerous place often as religious Israel. 
We can dress up the outside. We can show up. We can do what a lot of us do as Christians all the time is put on the hypocritical, fake Christian smile. Pretend that all is well. You're good. I'm good. Okay, we're all okay. Come in and look good and take communion, go through the motions and have the coffee together and fellowship and sing some songs and, and our heart not be drawing near to God. And God just isn't interested in it. He says, that's vain worship. He's just not interested in it. It doesn't merit anything before God. And then also importantly, it doesn't do anything good for the worshiper. So why do it? Why not rather go to the beach? And yet so many people show up at church and just go through the motions. We don't even prepare ourselves well for church. Right? We often don't even prepare our hearts. Again, the external things. And we just kind of show up. But what if we like prepared ourselves to truly seek and worship God and give to God? What if we saw that first set of worship not as a buffer time between when church starts and when you really have to get there, but as actually God's time when we give God glory and praise for who he is and what he's done for us. We don't even take that seriously. Almost nobody comes to church on time. You are never late for a movie. You are never late for a dinner reservation, but you are always late for church. That tells us something. That tells us something about our hearts, about the pursuit of God or or not, about going through the motions. I know that's harsh. I'm aware of that. He said to them, part of their problem in the second part of verse 9, is that their teachings were merely human rules. So the way that they were beginning to talk about God, uh, try to be a community of God, try to follow God as Israel's religious leaders here, was mostly formed around their thoughts rather than God's thoughts, right? It was more man-centered than God-centered. It was more uh, tradition-centered than it was Bible-centered. And as long as the thoughts of man are at the center, then the worship of man is what's going to take place. And I mean worshiping ourselves as opposed to offering up the sacrifice of praise. We make ourselves central. That's why so much of our church experience is about, am I going to be comfortable? Are my needs going to be met? Am I going to hear what I want to hear? Are they going to do the song I want to? Is it going to be too cold? Is it going to be too hot? Is anybody going to say hi to me? That forms so much of our gathering experience. And we're just like Israel. We're gathering around our own thoughts and our own expectations rather than God's word and who Christ is. But when the truth of God is central and Jesus is central in the church, then the worship of God and the worship of Christ becomes central. Because we're such an egocentric people, we have to actually fight really hard to make it Christocentric, Christ-centered, all about Jesus. We got to give that some effort. Man, you see the worship leaders sometimes like working so hard to get the people there. Like, come on, people, just think about Jesus for a minute and sing to him. We're just pretty self-concerned. But, but, but what Israel was meant to be was a holy gathering of God's holy people around the holy God himself for his holy glory. And what the church is meant to be is that same sort of thing. Christ's people gathered around Christ 
for Christ's glory. Gather to, for, and around him. And this primarily has to do with the way that we view truth, what is truth, what isn't truth. That's why we preach the Bible is the ultimate truth. And it has to do with the condition of our hearts as it interacts with the truth. Remember when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well? John chapter 4, he said this to her. She wanted to dispute about, well, where should we worship? And those guys aren't doing it right. We're doing it this way over here. And Jesus said, shut up. He didn't say that. But he said this. An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So having to do with the heart, the inner woman, the inner man, as opposed to external observances, and truth according to God's word and who it reveals God to be and who it reveals us to be in light of that. I think about what King David said to his son Solomon when he was commissioning his son to build the temple. He said this, As for you, my son Solomon, know that the God of your father, know, excuse me, the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. So Solomon and David and all of Israel already knew this whole uh, priestly structure and the sacrifices and the tabernacle and all the stuff that, re- that formed the religious life. And now they're going to make the temple, this huge, glorious temple. And dad is saying to son, David is saying to Solomon, make sure that you keep worshiping in your heart. Be wholly devoted to God in your heart. Don't let it become about this thing that you can build or the wealth that's required there or the things that you acquire as Solomon or just going through religious routine. Stay wholeheartedly devoted to God because God looks on the heart. So there's no merit in worshiping just merely externally. Worship in vain, as Jesus called. It doesn't bless God and it doesn't bless us. Now, after rebuking the religious leaders, Jesus turns to the crowd to teach them. Remember, there's one more problem. They were missing a key truth about defilement. Defilement. So in verse 10, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and said, do you know that you offended the Pharisees, so on and so forth? Verse 16, Jesus didn't care. Verse 16, skip there. Are you so dull, Peter? Jesus asks him. He says in verse 17, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile him. So remember, the idea of defile, flip side of that coin is ceremonial cleansing, was to do these external things that represented our worthiness to come into the presence of God, to worship God as Israel, 
right? So defilement was, I haven't done the right things that represent a right heart to come before God. And so for them, it was like, you didn't wash your hands, man. You're, you're defiled before God. And Jesus, that just goes into your body and later on it goes into the potty. That doesn't mean anything. What's really something is what comes out of our mouths because a mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. It says in Proverbs twenty-seven nineteen, as a face is reflected in water, so the heart reflects the real person. Man, the scary truth is, Jesus says in the New Testament, that then the mouth reflects the heart. The heart reflects the true person. What comes out of the mouth reflects the heart. So what, what, what you're saying is what's really going on in here. And Jesus says, that's the picture of defilement, not what you're putting in your mouth, but what's coming out of your mouth. And when he said that, he turned the entire religious idea of the day on its head. Because it had become about these external observances and just going through the routine. And that is so much easier than stewarding one's heart. And he's also wanting them to see the, the ineffectiveness of living in the place of mere external observances. Paul would drill deeply down on this later on in the book of Colossians. We'll look at a lengthy passage here. Paul says about these things, And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots go down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will go strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking, right? There's that idea of kind of tradition that we were talking about and the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is ahead over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. So in this way, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory of them over over them on the cross. So... Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. The point of it all is Jesus in our union with him moving away from mere religion, external observances, what you eat, what you drink, certain days, certain things, to relationship. Away from religion to relationship. Right? The problem with religion is that it doesn't fully get there. 
Look as it continues. Does it continue? Yes. You have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world? Such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. They go in the body and out the potty. These rules may seem wise, listen, because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. That's the situation that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were in. They were working really hard with strong devotion, pious self-denial, and even severe bodily discipline. They built a fence around the law. They weren't even going to get close to it, but their hearts were still rotten. That's the problem with religion. Mere external observances. But we, through faith in Christ, have been brought into a relationship. And through the power of God, we can actually have help in conquering our evil desires, those things that dwell in the human heart. That is why the work of the new covenant is a new heart, not a new set of rules. That is why our righteousness is found in Christ and is not our own. What we need is to be renewed by a greater external power on the inside, not merely washing our hands on the outside. That's the problem with religion. Paul would say in Philippians, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilated, all folks those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved right that's the outward observance oriented people for we who worship the spirit of god are the ones who are truly circumcised here's that imagery again here's here's the key phrase we rely on what christ jesus has done for us let's read that out loud we rely on what christ jesus has done for us good We put no confidence in human effort. Then Paul says, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. That's so Paul right there. Indeed, if others have a reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Then he goes on to list them in case you didn't know them. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. And I once thought these things were valuable but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. It goes on. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
for his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. That is the good news. That is the wonderful news for humanity that had been caught up in this religious, how can we ever please God and be acceptable before God? And God had given Israel some external observances that were meant to represent some internal realities that were coming. But that reality is found in Christ. And what he has done for us in the cross so that in our salvation, we are not given a new set of rules. We are given a new heart. God told Israel about the new covenant in Ezekiel. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. Right? They were talking about washing their own hands. God says, I'm going to wash you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you'll no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart and I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Now notice there, we're not to understand from all of this that the rules and the decrees and the regulations, God's law, are unimportant. They are important. It's just not the way that we are presentable before God is by performing according to the rules because we fail miserably. So Christ is righteous for us. Christ lived a perfect life because we couldn't. He died on the cross so that we wouldn't and he rose from the dead to give us eternal life through the forgiveness of sins. And then God gives us a new heart that is soft and supple, responsive to him and puts his spirit in us that lo and behold, suddenly wants to obey God from the heart, is no longer content with just washing hands hands, but says, God, you have washed my heart. I want to follow, honor, serve, glorify, obey you all the days of my life. This is what God has done for us in Christ. This is what Christ is trying to draw these religious leaders into. Obedience from the heart is true worship. Obedience from the heart is true worship. Now, here's an area where I, I see us get tripped up once in a while. Obedience from the heart is true, true worship. Through faith in Christ, we're given a new heart. God's spirit is put in us. We suddenly desire to live in a way that glorifies God. And we're, we have this issue in our life where we're choosing between obedience and disobedience. And we find that our heart is divided. It wants to do the right thing, but it also wants to do a bad thing. Can anybody relate to this? Right? This is called the war between the flesh and the spirit in Galatians chapter 5. This is Romans chapter 7. I, I know the right thing to do. I, I, keep, I, I keep doing the bad thing. True worship is obedience from the heart. What that doesn't mean then is that we just wait until God changes our heart on a particular issue. Right? You often hear Christians say, well, you know, if God wants me to do that, he's just going to have to change my heart. wait a minute, God has already given you a new heart that is responsive to God's truth. 
God's word, God's law. And if you know the truth, then the responsibility of the disciple, the follower of Jesus, is to go the way of the truth. It's to go the way of the spirit in that battle between I know the right thing, but I want to do the bad thing. Don't wait and say, well, if God changes my heart on that issue, then I'll go the right way. If you know the right way, go the right way. Go God's way. Go the way of God's word. We don't have the excuse of just saying, well, I'll wait until I feel like obeying it. Rather, it means that we are currently, because of God's spirit in us and the new heart he's given us, determined to obey for the glory of God and to do so truly, inwardly, not merely externally. Paul said that we are to live as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. As slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Romans chapter 6, Renny, skip a slide. Romans chapter 6, this is where we end. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from the heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. There is a change that has happened to us internally. We were once slaves to sin. Now we have been changed, born again, made new creations, and we become slaves of Christ or righteousness for the glory of God. And our main concern is no longer what pleases me, but what pleases Christ. And that is real worship. And the good news is that we have the final authority on what pleases God. We have the full and final revelation and authority on how God feels about issues, the word of God. And we have been given a good, new, a new heart, excuse me, that's responsive to that. And so we have a prayer that we can pray daily as God's people. Uh, yep. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Lead me in the everlasting way. Christ is the one who has lived righteously on our behalf, died to pay the price for sins on our behalf and has risen to new life and given us new life. And so the prayer of the Christian is, God, you know my heart. Search me and lead me in paths of righteousness for your namesake. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for such mercy on sinners that you would send your son to give us new life. Thank you for the new covenant through which by placing faith in you, we have this new reality, this new heart, your spirit in us. Help us, Lord, to be faithful Jesus followers and less like these Pharisees. Help us, Christ, to place ourselves under the authority of your word and to learn to live for your glory. By mercy, show us in our own hearts our places of hypocrisy where we hide behind our own holiness and cast stone at others. 
Teach us to walk in righteousness in our own hearts before you for your glory and to love each other with mercy. Thank you, Jesus, that you're the only perfect one in whom we have forgiveness.